This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide issue that affects you. And of course, a lot of conversation since last week about militia groups in Michigan and the language that we use to describe them. Uh, The plot that was uncovered by the FBI and arrests made by the FBI and MSP. A lot of people are saying that we should be calling that domestic terrorism and only domestic terrorism. And uh, so happens we know someone who studies these subjects, uh, Oakland University professor Peter Trumbor. Peter, welcome to Mishmash. Thanks, Jake. So, Pete, talk to us a little bit about essentially the language that we have been using when it comes to these types of groups and these types of situations. I'm thinking about uh, words like domestic terrorist or militia or both. Should we be using those types of words? Yes. And uh, so, Shana, I think it's important to actually keep both words in the conversation because each word tells us something important. Terrorist tells you what they we're doing or proposing to do, right? So terrorism is all about action. Militia tells you a little bit about what they might believe, what might motivate them. Uh, It also tells you a little bit about what their likely organization and, and capabilities are. So when you have both words in the discussion, it really, to sort of quote an, a, another security analyst, it tells you what flavor of terrorist these suspected terrorists were. And, and Pete, you know, we saw tweets from the governor herself, who was the planned target of this attack. Uh, she said, do not call them militia groups, call them domestic terrorists. Um, you know, I'm curious what you think. Why, why you think that the language that we use matters in this case? Well, the language we use matters in part because it shapes the public perception of just how how big a risk terrorism is. And, and one of the things that we that we see if we look at the, at the evidence is that when minorities in particular uh, in this country, Muslims, perpetrate acts of terrorism, the media almost immediately describes them and defines them as terrorists. When we see uh, white folks uh, engaging in political violence, they typically get referred to as extremists or as lone shooters or mass shooters. And that what that, what that does is it doesn't identify what the action actually actually is, right? And so the public tends not to look at right-wing political violence in the United States as terrorism because frankly, the media rarely refers to it that way. Anytime you have politically motivated violence or politically motivated threats of violence, you're talking about terrorism, regardless of the color of the, of the suspect's or perpetrator's skin, or their religious beliefs or their ideology, right? And so I think that's where the pushback came. Here you had a group of white men who were accused of, of plotting some extreme uh, politically motivated violence. And the, the initial reporting was describing them as militias, as militia members. That reporting was accurate. What it wasn't doing at the outset was saying that what they were planning to do was to carry out acts of terrorism. Talk to us a little bit about why people are so sensitive about the use or the non-use of the word uh, terrorism or terrorist, particularly about why people tend to be sensitive about when to use that word. Well, one of the things certainly about domestic terrorism in the United States that, that shapes the conversation is at the federal level, there are no domestic terrorism statutes. And partly that's a, that is a reaction to an unwillingness uh, under the First Amendment to criminalize political thought and and political speech. 
um, it's much easier for us to apply uh, the label of terrorism to even uh, domestic actors who have a foreign terrorist connection. Um, so to, to call somebody a suspected terrorist when they are speaking politically motivated threats, um, some folks look at that and say that that's a line we can't cross because what we're doing is we are criminalizing their political thoughts and ideas and we can't really act until they do something. That was actually behind the acquittal of the folks in 2010 that were accused of the Hutari militia terrorist plot. Um, what the judge decided is that they were simply exercising, for the most part, their First Amendment rights and uh, owned some illegal firearms. But because their plan did not move forward really beyond the, the talk stage, uh, the judge threw out the, I think they were charged with criminal sedition or something like that. The judge threw that, those charges out. So uh, part of it revolves around uh, a squeamishness about criminalizing political thought and political speech, especially even, even when that political thought and political speech um, is potentially discussing acts of violence that, that individuals or groups might want to carry out. Yeah, Peter, we've talked about this before. Um, For example, the Las Vegas shooter, you know, that this was an example of someone who uh, committed this this atrocity. You know, so many people died, so many people injured. uh, So many people wanted that to be called terrorism. But in the days that followed, it wasn't really clear what the shooter's motive was. And that was a very different situation than what we're talking about here. Correct. So we still don't know what motivated the Las Vegas shooter. It's still not clear. Um, We do know what, uh, at least based upon the FBI affidavit and the the Michigan State Police charging documents, we do know what motivated these guys, uh, these so-called Wolverine uh, Watchmen militia. Uh, They were pushing against, back against, or taking action against what they believed to be government tyranny. According to the affidavit, uh, one of the guys was was angry because gyms were closed. Um, so we know that uh, that that this group was specifically motivated by uh, a, a political anti-government agenda, and that's a key part of defining any act of violence as an act of terrorism as opposed to something else. It's about the motivation behind the action. And is the action intended to bring about some kind of political, social, or religious goal? Um, that's very much what, what again, if, if, the, if the charging documents are correct, that's very much what these guys wanted. It seemed that after 9-11, for example, the country was very focused on uh, what we have come to see as sort of the traditional version of terrorism. You know, it's it's abroad, it's, a, it's an exterior threat coming in. Uh, do you feel that going forward, we're going to uh, sort of add domestic terrorism to the general terrorism conversation? Are we going to s- potentially start seeing more of this? Well, look, frankly, that's that's... That's an issue for the media, not for the policy or academic community. In all honesty, uh, it has long been known that the, that the major terrorism threat facing the United States comes from domestic actors, Americans uh, using violence against other Americans to advance a particular political, social, or religious uh, agenda. Uh, we have a long history of 
of that kind of terrorism in this country. And it, the, the reality is we just haven't seen it recently, at least not at the kind of scale that we used to see it. I mean, the 1970s was a, a hotbed, frankly, of domestic terrorism. Uh, I think in one year, New York City alone had some, in the 1970s, had something like 54 bombings, including 10 in a single month. Um, so we've kind of gotten away from uh, the, the, the memory of what the actual terrorist threat the United States faces uh, consists of. Uh, but even, even back in the, uh, 2008, 2009, the, the FBI, there was an FBI uh, intelligence report that ended up getting suppressed by the Republican-controlled uh, Congress because it made this point that the far right wing was emerging as the most important domestic terrorism threat, um, and that the, the far right wing had infiltrated and was recruiting among the ranks of both active duty and former military. And there was, and the FBI was warning about the possibility of right wing radicalization on the part of American service personnel returning from the Middle East wars. Um, that report was suppressed. Um, Beginning about 2014, 2015, uh, Department of Homeland Security has gotten much more serious about identifying right-wing terrorism and white supremacist, supremacist and white nationalist terrorism as the most significant terrorism threat the country faces. And the most recently released DHS report comes out and finally says it. So again, this is not something new. It's simply something that the, the media has tended to mischaracterize, if you ask me. And since you bring up the media, then I want to follow up and just ask, what should the media be doing? How can we do this? How can we report on these uh, the situation better? I think when, whenever we see a case of, of politically motivated violence or threat of violence, I think it's incumbent upon the media to call it what it is. And that's uh, terrorism or attempted terrorism. You know, the debate, for example, go back to uh, um, the Emmanuel uh, AME church shooting and Dylan Roof. That was an act of terrorism. Roof intended that act to trigger what he believed to be necessary race war. And he thought that by taking that action, he would inspire other white supremacists to follow his example. Uh, that is a very, that's a clear political motivation. But Roof was not in the media characterized as a terrorist. Uh, he, there was a discussion about his mental state. There was a discussion about his racism. And then there was a debate in the media about whether that should be called terrorism. Frankly, in, in the academic and policy community, there was no debate. So I think, uh, I think it's incumbent on the media that when, when you see uh, politically motivated acts of violence, uh, especially carried out by organized groups or by individuals who have been inspired by political movements, um, then that, that needs to be called what it is, and, and that's terrorism. You know, uh, going back to what you said in the initial answer about, and what you've written about recently since the FBI and MSP uncovered this plot, you know, you've been saying that we need to be using both of these terms, uh, domestic terrorism and militia groups. There have been some militia groups uh, that have come out, not not involved in, in this case, that have basically said, look, we're not all the same here. We're, we're not these guys. We're different. Um, you know, so when you say we need to use both of those terms in this specific example, uh, how synonymous are those terms or are they not at all? Well, they're, they're not synonymous until a militia group engages in terrorism, right? So the definition of terrorism is about the action 
or the threatened action. It's, it's not about, you know, playing dress up in tactical gear and running around the, the woods with, with semi-automatic weapons. Um, that doesn't make you a terrorist. Um, it's when a militia group or, or individuals who have splintered off of a militia group engage in violent conduct that we need to characterize them uh, as, as terrorists. But knowing that they come out of the militia movement gives us a window into their belief system. It gives us a window into their ideology. Uh, and ideology is fundamentally connected to target selection. If you know what a, a group or a violent actor believes, you know a lot about the kinds of targets that they're gonna go after. Um, so knowing that a violent group comes out of the militia movement uh, tells you that the likely targets they're looking at are elected or appointed political figures, uh, government infrastructure, uh, government buildings, and for some in the militia movement, law enforcement. So knowing those things gives you a better understanding of, of both who they are and what they're trying to accomplish and why. The other thing I think that's helpful about recognizing that, that they're part of this larger militia movement, which is diverse, right? It's not, it's not, it's not a one set of beliefs within the militia movement broadly, uh, but it does give us some idea of what their, their organization is. Uh, militia groups, even small ones, tend to be hierarchically organized with uh, people in command roles and others with specialized tasks. Uh, they tend to be equipped in similar ways. Um, they tend to train in particular ways, right? Small unit combat tactics, field medicine, reconnaissance, and all this sort of stuff. So knowing that they come out of that, that militia milieu tells you not just about what they believe, but likely what they might be capable of. The other thing about knowing uh, that that they come out of the militia movement is that many militias recruit people with either police or military backgrounds. And we see this in this case. At least one of the suspects is a former Marine who was valued because of the, the skills and training that he received as uh, in the service. And, and so again, right, that, di that differentiates from potentially other groups that don't recruit within those same pools. So, so Pete, knowing what you know and studying what you've studied about terrorism and about militias, I'm curious if you, what was your gut reaction when you heard about this plot? I mean, were you surprised? Were you as shocked as, as so many of us were? Well, you know, the temperature had been rising, has been rising all summer. Um, and I think the, the language that we've heard uh, coming from the far right of the political spectrum has been because been getting more and more incendiary. Uh, I was not surprised to hear that there was an organized anti-government plot targeting a Democrat governor or elected official. Um, you know, I think that we had gotten ourselves in, into, uh, I think, a point where there were a lot of people watching these guys wandering around outside the state house with their bulletproof vests and, and their long arms and an increasing um, wariness about what are these folks gonna be willing to do or what are some of these folks gonna be willing to do. Uh, you know, some of the people who were, who have been charged were present at, at several of the anti-lockdown protests in the state house in the spring and summer. So I think it's not a surprise, especially given how heated this climate is, how polarized the country is, how much uncertainty there is going into November 3rd. Um, no, I was not surprised. 
I'm curious. We've been talking about mostly when it, in regards to language, you know, terrorist, uh, terrorism, militia. Are there other words uh, sort of in this conversation that maybe uh, are not always used properly or that get misconstrued or that people should be aware of? Uh, yeah, I think that so like one of the pushbacks against the idea of calling these groups militias or these guys in particular militias is that in the American context, historically and constitutionally, uh, militias mean something specific, right? They, they uh, basically armed, group of, armed groups of citizens who are under the command of governmental authority, right? And so the National Guard, for example, is the modern sort of uh, inheritor of the, the historical American militia mantle. Um, you know, maybe a word we, could, we should use instead is paramilitary. And that's a word we use a lot in other countries' contexts. We, you know, for example, in Latin America, we talk about paramilitary groups all the time. Uh, in Northern Ireland, we talk about paramilitary groups all the time. Uh, and so maybe that would be a better, what's a better, less wo- loaded word, right? That's not larded down with the baggage of the American historical experience and the role that militias have historically played in, in the United States. Uh, but frankly, these guys identify themselves as militia. Um, and it's, it's not, it's, I guess it's a shorthand, right? It's a useful shorthand for understanding who they are and what they believe um, and what they see their role to be in American society. Another word that's often been applied uh, to these groups, uh, and this was especially true back in the 1990s, um, in the mid to late 1990s, were patriot groups. These were, this was called the patriot movement. And I'm pleased to see that we don't typically uh, see that language used very often anymore uh, because it allows those groups to co-opt you know, the, the, the meaning of patriot. If I'm part of the patriot movement, um, then I own that. And, and the rest of you don't get to call yourselves this. Um, look, for me, um, and I talk to my students about this stuff all the time, like the words really matter, the definitions matter. And, and the, the more precise we can become with the language we use, the better equipped we are to understand and study um, a phenomenon. And I think terrorism is no different. Um, I do think uh, that we need to use the word terrorism in in an appropriate way, right? To, to really focus on the core pieces of the definition and the core pieces of the definition revolve around deliberate and premeditated politically, socially, or religiously motivated use or threat of violence intended to influence an audience beyond the immediate target. Uh, and especially when there's an intention to create and exploit fear. If you look at, at what these guys accused in the plot against the governor were trying to do, they hit every one of those, of those pieces. Their plans were deliberate and premeditated. They were motivated by a political objective. They wanted to carry out acts of violence in pursuit of those goals. They wanted to inspire others to carry out further attacks. And they wanted to strike fear through the use of violence. And that's just the classic definition of what makes anybody or any group a terrorist group. Peter Trumbor, professor and chair of the political science department at Oakland University. Thank you so much for joining us here on Mishmash. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Shane. Okay, so Shana, I was just thinking this as we were talking to Peter. I just thought as someone who, 
used to cover the Capitol and sat in those seats in the state Senate chamber. You being the person that did that job after me, someone who also sat in the the seat in the press corps. Um, you know, we we found out after the FBI and the attorney general made these announcements uh, that multiple members that were charged had been in the Senate chamber uh, with weapons uh, on one of those days that they were protesting in the Capitol. Neither of us, I, I don't think, were there. I know I wasn't, but because we neither of us cover the state Capitol anymore directly. But the visceral reaction that it gave me, what like I got chills because obviously not only can I put myself there, but people that we know, people that we are friends with, that our colleagues that work so hard to bring news about the Capitol sit right below the the gallery in the Senate every single day to do that work. Um, and we also know people who are lawmakers in the state Capitol. I'm curious, you know, how you reacted to that when you when you first found that out and, and when you sort of, you know, were confronted with this fact that, look, you know, we've all been there during Second Amendment days uh, where they're covering gun- carrying guns and we know the feeling that it creates. You know, I'm not going to lie. I spent the day that the news came out and probably the next day with just a weird pit in my stomach. Um, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about the sliding doors potential of, of what could have happened. Um, not only because that's that's where I used to work. Mm-hmm. That's where I spent, uh, you know, hours upon hours of my week when I worked at the Capitol. I was always there. And, and yeah, I mean, there would always be those Second Amendment days. You kind of always knew that, you know, lawmakers were carrying, that anybody could be carrying because they were allowed to to carry concealed. Uh, it was it, it never felt like a dangerous place at the time. Um, and I couldn't help but feeling like my images of the Capitol and my um, the way I see that building is is probably changed. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um and I c- couldn't help but think, you know, uh, most of my friends work at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. My you know, some of my best friends are there uh, almost on a daily basis and probably were there uh when these men were there and it's just it's the what ifs are just too mind melting and too sad to really spend too much time on. But it was definitely something that when it came out, I I could not set down right initially. Yeah. I could not set that part of it aside. Um, and and it felt weird to, to have such a reaction to it because I'm like, well, I don't work there anymore. That's, <laughs> that, right. you know, I'm not at risk. That's not my job anymore. Um, but even now, you know, once COVID is is over and I feel safe to go out and cover things again, um, you know, I could be going to the Capitol again because I work, you know, focus on the environment. There's a lot of politics involved in the environmental beat. And I I wonder what that is going to feel like now, where this place that used to feel very much on some level like a second home uh, now feels a little more dangerous than it did. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I feel like just the idea that lawmakers are sitting at their desks 
and they have uh you know bulletproof vests in their desks now mm-hmm. on a regular basis uh you know we heard people talk about lawmakers wearing uh bulletproof vests that day but now i'm seeing more and more of them say this is just what i feel like i need to bring to work uh now just in case i mean you know and just thinking you know it's not just those people they they have families obviously mm-hmm. um the amount of anxiety that uh, exists in the sphere of lawmaking and reporting and all of those things in Michigan now. It's not just for me scary uh, on that gut level, although it certainly is that pit that you said that you felt. I definitely have been feeling that too, but also scary in what chilling effect that has on you know, just what mentally it does to people that are just trying to do their jobs for the people of the state um, that, you know, this amount of of, of fear and uh, feeling of not being safe. Uh, how does that change the dynamics of uh, being able to do your job? Uh, and, and probably one of the, some of the most important jobs that we have when it comes to major decisions that are made every day. So, um, yeah, I, I've it, it's been something that's really weighing on me a whole lot. And just my thoughts go out to our colleagues in the Capitol Press Corps and lawmakers from across the state, regardless of party or, or any of that, that, you know, this is a it's a scary time. And hopefully there will be um, something that will will come along that maybe will will re- restore a sense of security and safety uh, in that work environment. Well, that's all for Mishmash this week. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Roth. Thanks for tuning in. 